you didn't know, I grew up in uh, southeast Georgia, uh, a small sweltering township near Savannah. Township is like when it's so small that you uh, don't have like a, your own postal code. You have to go to the next city to get your mail. Um, and the, the setting that I grew up in had kind of like a church building on every block. And the only measure of differentiation uh, between churches that I knew of when I was a kid was, you know, who was more fundamentalist than the next church. And, uh, and so I grew up going to church. I enjoyed church. I was in a youth group. And I remember the journey of discipleship, specifically in the youth group phase, like, kind of like an effort to see who can hold on to a spinning tire swing the longest. You guys ever do that thing? You know what I'm talking about, where you wind the rope uh, so that the tire itself slowly ascends as the cord becomes tighter, and then you kind of have to help each other climb up onto it so it doesn't start before you're on there. And then you take hold and you brace yourself for the, you know, the age-old battle of man and woman versus centrifugal force. It's a, it's a great game. Try it sometime. I actually just did it recently um, in our community uh, at, the, at Heather at your house. They had a tire swing. It was high. It was like, you know, as high as an elephant's eye, they say. And, uh, and I held on for the ride. It was great. It's imp- I'm sure there's a video that exists or something. Anyway, it's a fun game. Try it out. Um, so the idea is like that's kind of what discipleship is like, see who can hold on the longest. So you'd be at youth group and the update would be like, oh, oops, you know, Jesse's gone. That's it for him. Or it would be like, oh, Erica fell in with the wrong crowd. So that's it for her. Or it'd be like, oh, you know, some Emmett needs to go talk to PJ because he's backslidden again. Somebody's got to do something about that. And uh, the reasons were always the same. And they eventually, it, all, it always came back to the world this big scary entity called the world, the big scary globe to which we are all stuck. It enticed susceptible teenagers into its claws with the lure of, you know, secular rock music or swear words or R-rated movies or, you know, parties or beer or boyfriends and girlfriends. And the preventative measure was to hide out, you know, have Christian friends, Christian music, Christian social gatherings, maybe even Christian boyfriends and girlfriends, just as long as you don't, you know, like sit next to each other in the church van or something like that. And I realize this all sounds like a bygone era. Uh, You know, we aren't in the mid-90s, nor is this Georgia, though it feels like it outside right now. Um, Most or all of us uh, aren't teenagers. Today, by and large, we think about the invisible wall that keeps the world at bay a lot less. You know, we hide a lot less, though it still happens, and we'll talk about that later. But I would argue that we may be no closer to finding Jesus' center of gravity than decades prior. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And, of course, welcome to Van City Church. Our goal, like Cam was just saying, is to orient this small community around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. And for us, that means that we are in constant pursuit of unearthing the ancient beauty of the way of Jesus and actually putting his teachings and his way of life into practice together. Michael Frost describes the work of the church today like this. To rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church, and to apply them to life on the soil of a post-Christian empire. 
I love that. I think that that describes our vision here at Van City quite well. And of course, it isn't perfect. We stumble and we clamor and we lag on the road of discipleship. But the idea is that we're making a go of it together. So every few months, we take on a new practice from the life of Jesus. We learn about it here on Sunday evenings. Then we go out into smaller groups that we call Van City Communities, and we actually give it a shot together. The past three weeks... We've been working through the ancient spiritual discipline of eating and drinking, and we'll carry on with that practice throughout the summer, actually. But given the broad nature of that practice, we're going to kind of take it on in increments with breaks in between. So while you continue to work out the practice in your communities, we'll return this evening for a bit to the Gospel of Matthew, because while we're not working through a new practice, we've been in an ongoing, complex, I think beautiful but challenging investigation of this first century biography of Jesus of Nazareth. After all, if the idea is to practice the way of Jesus together, like I said, then we want to dedicate ourselves to knowing and understanding our teacher and Lord, the things that he said, the things that he did, and what he expects of those who would apprentice him. So, you guys ready to get to work? Feeling all right? Yep, great. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. I, I pardon, did I tell you guys verse 13, verse 9? Man, it's, it's only 527. We're all right. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. Quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then Jesus adds, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's a beautiful story, even just on the surface, but let's work through it line by line and go a bit deeper. It begins simply enough in verse 9, not 13, as I said earlier. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, as a bit of a historical refresh, this story takes place in first century Palestine, which was occupied and ruled by the enormous pagan empire of Rome. So imagine you're a first century Jew, a foreign power terrorizes your people, and you think to yourself, man, and I have to choose size, which is better off? In John Milton's famous 17th century poem, Paradise Lost, Satan himself confronts this option and he makes a terrible decision saying this, here we may reign secure and in my choice to reign is worth ambition though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So was the decision, I think, of the Jewish tax man. If they played their cards right, then tax collecting positions for the colonial power were, was a job open to the highest bidder, and tax collectors made a killing at their job. Not only could they enforce Rome's already exorbitant taxes with the backup of their occupying soldiers, they could themselves raise the prices personally and then pocket the difference. So the first century Jewish tax collector had, in one sense, a really cushy setup if they could land a gig, but of course there's a catch. When you work for the oppressor and your job is to assist in the oppression of your own people and when you profit from that job, this not only makes you a stranger in your own community, it makes you loathsome beyond description. A few weeks ago, I, I think I described the tax collector in the first century as something like a Jewish man in Nazi-occupied France who works for the SS to flush out his own people. 
Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, chances are you already knew that tax collectors were unpopular, largely disliked, but in my experience, we've kind of done a bit of romanticizing there. Because if you read a story like the one we've already read in tonight's text, it's easy to get caught up in the beauty of Jesus' compassion, the wideness in His mercy and willingness to seek those often held to be undesirable by society at large. People hated tax collectors. People despised them. But then you have to stop and think, but listen, who could blame them really? Today, when we see those who do injustice, who oppress, who extort, who prey on the vulnerable, propelled by greed and self-interest and profit from it, don't we condemn this? And shouldn't we condemn this? When I see those personally who deal in vile acts of hate, I recoil. When I turn on the news and I see, you know, white supremacists marching or the abusers of children or bigotry or sexism or political vitriol, I grit my teeth. I feel frustrated. I feel a deep sense in my soul, this isn't right. And I'm a pacifist. So tax collectors worked vocationally in injustice. It was their job to do injustice, and they did so on behalf of the enemy of their own people. And make no mistake, it's not like Jesus just had a warm place in his heart for them as a general rule. Just about everything in Jesus' teaching confirms that he himself condemned the lifestyle of the tax collector with language about as harsh as it gets. Here are a few historians on the status of the tax collector in the first century. Universally despised for their rapacity and low morals, the tax collectors of the Gospels were scorned on political grounds and because their work involved contact with Gentiles. By Jewish law, a tax collector was debarred from the synagogue. He was included with things and beasts unclean. He was forbidden to be a witness in any case. Robbers, murderers, and tax gatherers were classed together. This particular tax collector in the story we just read is identified as someone called Matthew. What's interesting, in both Mark and Luke's biographies of Jesus, this story happens and the same character is called Levi. Um, some scholars believe this is because the character that bore the name Levi did so when he worked as a tax collector and had since understandably opted to go by Matthew in order to kind of shake off his past connections. But interestingly, many modern scholars do not believe that Matthew the tax collector is also Matthew the author of this gospel. And the consensus is based on the fact that most scholars also believe that Matthew, the author of the gospel, relied on Mark's gospel to draft his own biography of Jesus. Not that he stole stories or that he made it up or he copied it, because they are different but that Matthew referenced Mark's material in order to sort of make sure he had the best possible draft of his own account of Jesus. And Mark, we know, was not an apostle of Jesus, so it seems pretty far-fetched that if Matthew, the author, was an apostle of Jesus, that he would rely on a non-apostle account to draft his own biography of a man that he spent every day with for several years. In any event, all that aside, here's a tax collector. His name is Matthew. That's the point. Story goes on. Verse 9. Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, it seems terribly simplistic, but let's unpack that, this just a bit. The simple invitation of Jesus, follow me, is the same one that he issues to Peter, if you know the story, the same one he issues to Andrew, to James, to John. But in all of those stories, Jesus was calling those guys away from good things, like their vocation as fishermen, their own families, and so on. And while it's true that each of those gentlemen were in some ways kind of unlikely candidates to be called by a rabbi to become disciples, the calling of Matthew and the fact that it works is nothing short of miraculous. And upon casual reading, it seems really weird. Matthew, who's this, in context, this villainous swindler, he gets two words from Jesus, at least in English, and he's just going to pack up and roll out just like that, give his cushy life the wave goodbye. But listen, think about it for a second. 
Imagine being entrenched in a vile way of life for years. Imagine your own actions have estranged you from your own people, your community, your God. Imagine having money and comfort, sure, but the cost you pay is to become loathsome and reprehensible to the people around you and, and little more than a pawn to the people for whom you've sold out in the first place. And now word has begun to spread about a man, an interesting man, a prophet maybe. He does miracles, he heals the sick, he's proclaiming that God's inbreaking kingdom is here. And you may be a sellout, but you're still Jewish. You know the stories, you've grown up with them, and you're thinking, dang, could this be it? Is this God enacting his plan to rescue? And now that's terrifying because you know that you've blown it. If that's true, you're going to be judged. And who's this guy anyway that everyone's talking about? What power and magnetism he possesses, the way people talk about him and the way that people flock to him. And then one day, here he comes. And all of a sudden, he's walking this way right to where you do your dirty business. A Jewish rabbi before one hated most by the entire Jewish community. And he opens his mouth to speak to you. And he says, follow me. Follow me meaning you. Yes, you. You are fit for the honor of becoming one of my apprentices. I will accept you. You will become one of my closest friends. I will invest in you. I will sacrifice for you. I will offer you my way of life. Come follow me. So in this sense, it doesn't seem like as hard to sell. Are you kidding? Heck yes, I will follow you. And notice the incredible power of Jesus' invitation has nothing to do with, hey, listen, here's what you'll get out of it. Um, You know, there's no mention of an afterlife. It's not to accept Jesus into Matthew's heart with a prayer. It isn't to become, you know, have Jesus become Matthew's personal Lord and Savior. It's just, follow me. Matthew's scholar, Dale Bruner, says this of Jesus' invitation. This word meaning the invitation to follow, is invested with nuclear power to tear persons away from all that was most precious to them before, fishing, boats, parents, or all that had most debased them, colonialism, money. The surest way to break the grip of creature comforts and economize mentalities is the discipling word of Jesus. Wherever the church has summoned persons to follow Jesus and not to another creature comfort, such as, say, heavenly bliss, The church has had the power of Jesus' own word for changing people. And think about the order of the stories here, if you remember through Matthew. We've just read about Jesus casting out demons. We've read about him healing the sick. We've read about him calming a storm verbally. We've read about him healing and restoring a paralyzed man. And now, right after all that, he calls a tax collector to become his apprentice. Matthew, the author of this gospel, specifically and intentionally places this story amidst a collection of miracles, because to him, that's exactly what it is, a miracle. And the story goes on in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, again, to us, this seems quite lovely, at least it does to me. But don't miss the justifiable scandal here. To the outsider looking in, this gesture could be a confusing one, and not because of pettiness or even hatred, but because of the Hebrew Scriptures. After all, look at this from the Psalms. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. The very first Psalm says... Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of Yahweh. 
And here in this story, Jesus is sitting with exactly these types of people. So don't rush to look down on the religious leaders. Consider for a moment the relatability of their confusion. It actually makes perfect sense. So in verse 11, they speak up. When the Pharisees saw this, this is the first time that they speak up in Matthew's gospel, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that they ask Jesus' disciples and not Jesus himself is interesting. One scholar I read this week argued that it could be because they were actually unwilling to enter the house themselves. So they found some folks kind of hanging around outside and asked them. And the language here of why does your teacher eat with tax collectors carries a certain amount of sharp sarcasm, meaning like, what kind of teacher is that? Your teacher. Why does he do that? And at any rate, somehow or another, their line of questioning reaches Jesus himself. Verse 12 says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, often in the story, Jesus defends himself right out of the gate with scripture, which is a wise method when dealing with those who are very serious about the scriptures. And he will use scripture here too, but first, he actually begins with brilliant common sense logic. Healthy people don't need doctors, sick people do. I'm like a doctor. Scholar N.T. Wright writes this, while other religious leaders of the day saw their task as being to keep themselves in quarantine away from possible sources of moral and spiritual infection, Jesus saw himself as a doctor who'd come to heal the sick. There's no point in a doctor staying in quarantine. He'll never do his job. Simple logic. So after employing his logical defense, Jesus drops the scripture. Verse 13, he says to them, go and learn what this means. And he quotes, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Adding to it, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus hasn't forgotten the scriptures. He hasn't thrown them out. He knows the Psalms. He knows what they're thinking. So he reveals to them a profound truth at the heart of God that compels his action. Why am I doing this? Because God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Yes, the Hebrew scriptures do speak at length about the corrupting potential of bad company, and that is a valid consideration. It's not nullified. It matters. But that consideration must be filtered through the greatest of all commandments, which is to love God and to love others as yourself. And this, of course, doesn't nullify the Scripture's wisdom about the dangers of keeping bad company, but it does mean that said wisdom cannot compel us to create a Christian bubble in order to shield us from the icky outside world. And here it kind of begs an interesting question. If anyone is sick, wouldn't it be the Pharisees, or at least wouldn't they be included in that category? Didn't Jesus come to save them as well? And the answer is, well, yes, and in a sense, no. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says it well when he writes this. The Pharisees have no need of this physician because their illness is to believe that they are well. Jesus has come to rescue sinners. In response to the Pharisees, he's observed, he observes the kingdom he has brought is constituted by those able to acknowledge their sins. All right, now, how are you guys doing? You all right? Feeling all right? Dave, Dave gave the high thumbs up. That's what I'm looking for, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, now, listen. If you're paying attention, if you've been around through our study of Matthew, there's a lot that we've unpacked already here. There's Jesus' subversive favor over those pushed to the margins of society. There's the way that Jesus sought out the lost by eating and drinking. We just talked a lot about that. There's the incredible compassion of Jesus, the, mirac the miracles of Jesus. So in tonight's text, what I want to highlight before we end for you and I this evening is a trademark example of what I love to call Jesus' frustrating center. Um, I had lunch with a couple of friends of mine on Saturday who recently planted a church in San Diego. 
we were swapping stories. Uh, they're a little bit younger than we are, but similar kind of, you know, like we've started or planned around the same time. Di very different churches, but we're kind of talking about how it's been going, funny stuff, the upsetting stuff. And they asked if anyone ever gets offended or upset at Van City. Just a fun story to swap, you know, among, amongst church planners. And they're like, yeah, does anyone ever get offended or upset with you guys? And I said, good grief, I hope so. And, uh, and here's what I mean. If I can manage to do my job well on a good day, and my job meaning to teach the Bible, then I think we'll all have to have our squirm buttons pressed from time to time. Because if you sit in here on Sunday after Sunday and you kind of nod along and you feel like you're never being called out or challenged or even offended by the masterful audacity and controversial divisiveness of Jesus, then that's not Jesus' fault. That's me. I'm just not describing it well. And of course, I, I don't mean that I want to provoke for the sake of being provocative, but as far as I can tell, Jesus did provoke. His teachings and way of life, I think, should jar us from time to time. So I told my friend that I want us to become a church, to be and become a church, where, you know, the right-leaning Bible enthusiasts, uh, those with the more conservative backgrounds, feel uncomfortable from time to time, where they feel challenged by the wideness of the Christian tradition, the frustrating ambiguity and unresolved tension that's often present in the Scriptures, and to learn to sit there. And I want our left-leaning, you know, uh, liturgist fans, if you will, to feel a different sort of squirminess. And I want them to see the incredible value that Jesus places on the Scriptures and on discipline and on historic orthodox faith and on self-denial. And I want to be first among those made to have my world upset all the time. I want to feel challenged and called out of my comfort zone. I want to have my theology put to the test and then see if I can side with Jesus every single time. And that is the frustrating center, to not be able to remain in one camp or the other, to have to hang around in this tension and be frustrated whichever side you kind of lean toward. And tonight's story is about Jesus' beautiful willingness to get his hands dirty. That's, that much is obvious, something that he exemplified with his whole life and with his death. But there's also something here kind of between the lines, which is the reality that Jesus was never corrupted by that with which he dirtied his hands. And therein lies the center. Our world may not be terribly similar to, you know, my southern youth group world of 1996 or whatever that I just talked about, but we still have ways to hide, and I'm learning this more all the time. We have our church, which becomes a great hiding spot. We have our own homes. We talked about that in eating and drinking, how they become little more than, you know, refuges to hide away from the world. Um, we, have our, we still have our own types of music. We have our own Christian kids shows and private schools and friend cliques, and not all of that is bad. Some of it can be just fine, just so long as it doesn't become a gate to keep the big bad world away. Because a sobering side effect uh, of such a thing gets revealed when, even recently, we're doing the practices. These last few sessions of eating and drinking, I don't know what it was like for you guys, but many of us were realizing that we have very few, or in some cases, no friends who do not already follow Jesus. And that's not a guilt trip. I'm actually right there with you. I work at a church, so there goes my opportunity to, you know, hang out with coworkers who don't follow Jesus. The cam comes close. Uh, <laughs> it's because I looked up and he was right there. Don't worry, I'm working on him. Um, 
So that's a challenge. And then there's just the nature of my wiring. Like I'm a deeply relational person, but I'm not like the gregarious or genial in the outgoing conventional sense. So what that looks like for me is that I have a very small number of individuals with whom I set out to be in close intimate relationship and to value and prioritize those friendships and relationships in a deep, meaningful way. And that can become a wall because it, it makes it very uh, challenging to let new people in to accommodate time with more people or, you know, then just add to that the given stresses of life on a given day or week, my own laziness or discouragement or whatever's going on. All of that can become a wall. And it has, frankly, for me. Or, you know, maybe we build walls with well intentions. Um, once I was thinking about uh, years ago when I worked as a videographer, I was on a shoot somewhere and one of the individuals involved with the shoot that was being filmed brought to me their adolescent son. He was himself interested in the medium of filmmaking. So they're like, hey, you know, you work in filmmaking and this, my son wants to be a, a filmmaker one day. Could, would you mind hanging out and talking with me? And I'm like, oh yeah, sure. So I, I had been hanging around with this family for a while over the course of the shoot. I'd learned that they were more on the you know, conservative side. And I don't mean that at all as a dig, but just as frame of kind of who they were. And, but then when I realized that as I sat and talked with this young man, that his only frame of reference for just about anything in the arts or in culture or in the world or around him in life itself were Christian branded things. And he seemed like a terribly sharp kid. He had potential, it seemed to me, as, like a, as talented as an artist. He even had begun creating things of his own that had potential, but they bore a painful disadvantage because his only exposure to the arts, a field in which he wanted to work, was from, you know, a Christian bookstore. His only awareness of the culture around him on which his work was intended to comment was through a nearly opaque Christian bubble. And don't get me wrong, I'm not at all saying that it's bad to protect your kids, it's not bad to limit their exposure to certain things. I do, I'm right there with you. But what I saw in this young man was a journey that was headed toward a wall that had been erected around him. And you guys know how it works. When the sheltered meet the wall, we all know that the story can, not always, but can end very poorly. Now, on the other hand, it seems to me that the reality many of us confront more often has less to do with walls and more to do with absolutely no restraint whatsoever. Because frankly, I, maybe you guys are different, but I know far more disciples of Jesus who are unconcerned with discipline or holiness than those who have become legalistic about it personally. Yes, Jesus dirtied his hands, absolutely, but remember the outcome of those interactions. For instance, Jesus ate with the wealthy and the corrupt, and yet he consistently exemplified a lifestyle of radical simplicity and generosity. It's the tax collectors who got changed, not Jesus. Jesus welcomed prostitutes, and yet he lived single and celibate his entire life. It was the prostitutes who were changed, not Jesus. Jesus celebrates, if you know the story, the faith of a Roman soldier, and he has a violent zealot as a disciple, and yet Jesus lived as a peacemaking pacifist. It was the zealot who was changed, not Jesus. So again, forget what you know about the Pharisees, and remember that here... They're not entirely out of line to ask the question, what are you doing with these guys? Again, this from Stanley Hauerwas. Jesus is concerned, as the Pharisees are, with how to maintain holiness in a world in which the people of God are not in control. The Pharisees rightly think that they should try to live avoiding anything that would make them impure and thus incapable of worshiping God. Jesus is not unsympathetic with their attempt to live true to the law.
So to end tonight, I want to suggest what I thought about it, racked my brain, tried to come up with something really clever, clever, and all I had was the most simple path forward, and that is to follow Jesus well, to practice the way of Jesus together. This is why we do the practices. This is why we gather as a church on Sunday evening, why we take communion together and sing songs. This is why we live in community rather than isolation. This is why we pray and listen and seek the Spirit of God. Because in all that, inevitably, you will be called beyond the confining walls of quarantine and out into the big bad world. If you listen and you ask, God will invite you to get your hands dirty. It is not a possibility. It is an inevitability. He just will. Believe me on that. So don't hide. Don't be afraid. Step out into what Christian culture often calls the world and practice the way of Jesus there. <laughs> not in the bubble or the sanctuary of Christian culture. In practicing the way of Jesus, the Spirit will nurture in you a sense of assuredness that confidently walks the dystopian chaos of a world that's gone off the rails and is yet unimpressed with what it offers. Behold the world around you. Don't be scared of it. Behold its sights and its sounds. Teach your children to walk in it without failing to teach them what that means, without teaching them to fall along the way without teaching them to be insulated in a covering that will ultimately decay. Be like Jesus, meaning do eat with tax collectors and yet live simply. Do sit with prostitutes and yet be pure. Do walk with the violent and yet do peace. After all, think about it. If Jesus had hidden in a privatized subculture, he would not have called Matthew. We would not be reading the story this evening. And if he had allowed the company of what the religious teachers call sinners to corrupt him, then his mission would have ultimately failed. So practice the way of Jesus, and you will learn to do both, just as he did. To end tonight, let's have Dallas Willard summarize what I'm getting at. All that is needed from us to change things, whether in the church or in the world, is sustained apprenticeship of individuals to Jesus. Our directions as we go are clear, to be disciples, apprentices of Jesus in kingdom living and by our life and words as his apprentices to witness, to bring others to know and long for the life that is in us through confidence in him. It's all true. It works. It is accessible to anyone. And there is nothing in the world to compare. That's all. That is all. So with that in mind, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to speak and inspire us in the week to come.